Hello and welcome to the WSW Society by Socially M podcast, a podcast about women supporting women in business and influencing on the ground, a place where like-minded women share their successful business journeys, mental struggles, organization, family life, and everything else in between. A place where you can feel supported, inspired, and connected, breaking the stigma behind competitiveness and competition in women, because together we are stronger. I'm your host, M, CEO and creative mastermind behind Socially M. I just realized essentially there was a niche here that I could focus on that not a lot of other law firms were doing. And it sort of gave me a point of difference, I guess, to do that. And it's something that I'm really passionate about. I do still sometimes find, even when I tell other lawyers what I do, they sort of say, oh, is that a thing? Like, can you make a whole business out of that? And um, wholeheartedly, yes, you can. So... (laughs) Welcome back to the podcast and on today's episode we have Tegan from the Social Law Co. Social media can be a fraught legal grey space and navigating it can be super confusing and overwhelming. Tegan from Social Law Co specialises in staying up to date in this rapidly evolving legal area, helping everyone from influencers to collaborators, digital courses and online businesses understand their legal stance. Winners of the 2021 Women in Law Award, the Social Law Co is someone you can trust to have your back. This stuff is so, so important for business owners, influencers, or anyone who makes money through social media. And I'm so honored and excited to have Tegan on today. Before we dive into this epic episode, I would love if you could take a moment whip out that phone obviously as long as you're not driving and take a story of you listening to this episode i love having a conversation with you in my dms and hearing just how much it resonated with you tegan thank you so much for being here with us today thanks for having me So you have such a unique point of difference compared to other lawyers in your industry. I'd love for you to discuss with our audience today how you decided this was the space you wanted to be in. Um, I think I'd done a lot of work previously with clients in the the retail, tourism, travel, um, professional services space. So it kind of made sense. um, The sort of questions that I was getting over time were heading more towards the digital marketing space, obviously, as an evolving field. So um, I just realized essentially there was a niche here that I could focus on that not a lot of other law firms were doing. And it sort of gave me a point of difference, I guess, to do that. And it's something that I'm really passionate about. So I decided to really um, niche right down into that and say that's you know what I'm doing now and that's pretty much mostly what I'm doing Um, and that is mostly what I do so um, it has been yeah it's been really good and it's been a good way to differentiate the services that we provide from other um, commercial and IP firms. Yeah I find that um, you know lawyers and accountants are still catching up with the digital marketing space and most Um, businesses small businesses or influencers are still scared to announce who they are to those to those industries because they're you know they are still catching up with what they actually are Um, so I love the fact that you are nailing this particular niche and your audience 
Yeah, it's, I think there is a little bit of that still. And I do still sometimes find, even when I tell other lawyers what I do, they sort of say, oh, is that a thing? Like, can you make a whole business out of that? And um, wholeheartedly, yes, you can. So, um, no, I think it's it's not just people that are within it. I think absolutely um, there is a little bit of a, um, a view from professionals perhaps about whether or not it is a legitimate business, which we all know now that it is. Mm. Uh, there's entire service industries around it. Obviously, our law firm, there's accounting firms that specialise specifically um, in this. And Emma, you and I have worked with um, one in the past. And, you know, there's there's various different advisors in this space now. Obviously, a lot of social media managers um, and marketing firms, PR agencies, everyone's sort of niching down into influencers. So it's definitely the future. Have you, um, how did you overcome those types of conversations when you do talk to them and they're like, oh, is that a thing? How do you overcome those situations? I sort of laugh because I think that it's, um, it's a bit of a shame that they don't understand it. And I don't, I think at the very start, I sort of took it to heart a little bit because I'd come out of a very large um, law firm and a very large professional services firm. And I sort of got those looks like, oh, is this what you're doing now? And I actually don't care because it's, it's important to me. I'm passionate about it and I can make a very good living out of it. So it doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> Yeah, it used it's, to not now. It do, it is getting easier. I remember two years ago when um, people would ask what I would do, I sort of would just say digital marketing, and they'll be like, "Oh, what's that?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah. how do I explain?" <laughs> I was almost too scared to say what I did because one, they wouldn't understand it. And then you've got to dive into it and then they judge and you're like, oh, it's not even bloody worth trying to explain this. I know it is a bit like that. I was actually talking to another lawyer in a big firm the other day around um, some evolving issues in the influencer marketing space. And I really had to take it back to absolute basics of what is this industry and how does it work and who are, you know, who's who in the zoo and, you know, the fact there is essentially sort of four, four main players in an influencer marketing campaign. You might have your influencer, you'll have your brand, and then you may have agencies or advisors sitting in front of either of them. So you might have your talent manager involved, and then you might have a marketing or PR agency that's helping the brand source those influencers. So going through all of that and explaining the process and the, the contracts that go each way and the issues that arise out of them, um, it's actually become very, very complex. And it is... Um, you sort of need to focus on this niche to be able to nail it because there are so many nuances that as a general commercial lawyer or as a general IP lawyer, you just won't be across and you won't understand the very um, intricate details of how it works and the legal issues that arise out of that that need to be covered off. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Like it's it's the same as when my, um, you know, someone will come to me and they're like, oh, well, we've got this digital marketing agency that are doing this. And it's like they all they're doing is they've just taken this brand new client straight from, you know, first like product launch straight to paid ads. And they're like, we're just spending five grand a month. We're not making any money. And it's like, you have skipped so many steps. Yeah. And, but the bigger agencies don't get it they're still catching up with the times they're coming straight from a marketing degree and not actually realizing how the algorithm works what influencers are how they are crucial to a business so yeah I feel like you have to be living and breathing in this space to really get it as a full 360. 
I think you do. And I think also because I also live it myself, it helps. Like I've gone through this process with my business. Um, I've gone through training courses on learning digital marketing myself for growing our own law firm. I've gone, I'm, I'm a brand ambassador myself for a big fashion label. So I understand the practicalities of it as well as the legal side of things, which really helps when you're drafting those agreements. Yeah. So with this being the topic we're talking about at the moment, I think this is a great segue to leave in, lead into what are the biggest misconceptions when it comes to needing legal for a small business? And I will say most of my listeners are e-commerce. So um, bearing that in mind, but what are the biggest misconceptions when it comes to needing legal? I think one of the biggest ones that I come and see and what people will often say to me when I raise an issue is that everybody else is doing it. So they look around at what other e-commerce businesses are doing on social media. They see a competition run by somebody else and they almost copy and paste the copy from that and think that's okay. They don't need full terms and conditions. They don't need permits or licenses. They haven't considered any of those issues. And then, you know, similar with working with influencers, they might just approach one and say, hey, can I send you some product? And then there's no terms around that. And there's an issue then if the influencer either doesn't perform or says something wrong about the brand and gets the brand in trouble for it and the brand needs some sort of recourse against the influencer or needs the influencer to take it down or a complaint's made to add standards and they need to try to have the the post edited and the influencer just ghost them. It's a real problem and it's not something that I think because of the way the industry has evolved and I thought it's my view I guess that when it first sort of, when we started to move into this um, influencer marketing space as a, as a, um, I guess, as a major part of a business, a lot of it, I think, from what I saw was a lot of um, parents as well that had started up businesses, had seen mummy bloggers and sort of connected with them. And then this, it sort of evolved naturally out of that in the influencer marketing space, particularly in the e-com space. And it, because of that, I guess it started off very informal. And then we got to the point where we're dealing with a lot more money now. We're dealing with products that are somewhat regulated when we're talking about things like therapeutic goods or um, financial advice. These things are a little, a lot more complicated than just sending some bibs to a mummy blogger or, um, you know, sending some sample jewelry or anything like that. So it's a little bit more complicated. And I think when you've started off in that smaller space and it was just a handshake deal to then realize as it grows that no, it's become more than that now. And this is, it's a serious business transaction between two separate commercial parties that we now need agreements like we do for any other agreement, any other business dealing that we have. We wouldn't buy product from our suppliers without an agreement. We wouldn't place an ad on, you know, uh, in a magazine or on a TV commercial without expecting there would be some sort of agreement we would need to sign. And influencer marketing is no different. I feel like it's um, small businesses, uh, I guess, don't consider themselves big enough to be in that space until it happens. And this is the thing is they don't consider what could happen until it hits them smack bang in their face and they're like, oh, shit, I'm in trouble. You know, like they they consider legal a last thought versus actually if you do it from the first foot, then you're protecting yourself Um, and then you're preventing any sort of mistakes like this that happen. 
That's right. And I guess there is this concern about what's it going to cost, because when people think about lawyers, they think it's expensive. They're very dry and difficult people to deal with. They won't understand my business structure. Um, it will just be too complicated. It's going to delay the process. These are all common pain points that I see when people are approaching lawyers, even, you know, when they first come to me and they've never dealt with a lawyer, these seem to be the things that they're concerned about. But I guess one way that we've taken that away by niching down is by understanding that, you know, having dealt with many clients in that boat and taking away some of those barriers. So it doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't need to be expensive. When you think about it, you might use any number of influencers over the course of your business journey. And you may have to spend a little bit of money upfront to actually get that agreement that you can reuse for each of those campaigns. So whilst you look at the campaign and say, oh, but I'm only paying, you know, a couple of hundred dollars for this, why would I spend you know, $2,000 on an agreement, but then you think, how many times am I going to pay influencers that amount of money? And how many times am I going to give away products? And if we think about it in that context, it's actually a very um, cost-effective investment to get that right at the start and to have yourself protected and not be sitting there going, this influence has completely ghosted me, or they've said something about my product and now I've got a complaint that I need to deal with. Yeah. Um, Instead of waiting for it to happen. Exactly. One of my clients, um, one of a big influencer, she had, I think 300,000 followers contacted my client directly and said, would love to work with you. And she was so excited. And I said, just be careful. I was like, if you are not protecting yourself in this, be careful because she was willing to do it for free, but the client was sending $3,000 worth of product to her and in hopes of, oh, she's got such a large account. And she was asking me and I was like, please be careful. <laughs> like you really like, cause I, but the thing is, I don't want to push someone into doing something, you know, you ha almost have to wait for them to make that mistake to go. Yeah. I told you so. And lo and behold, that influencer did absolutely nothing. And she has messaged several times, sent emails, and she's completely ghosted her. So now she's out of pocket $3,000. And, you know, so having this contract would have, one, fixed that um, and protected her, and two, would also in future protect her as well. Yeah, and one other thing I see with having those agreements in place, not only do you have that recourse to be able to, you know, send a letter of demand saying you haven't complied with the agreement that we have and making certain demands in relation to that, sometimes just presenting the agreement will weed out the ones that don't ever intend to post because they don't want to sign an agreement when they know they intend to do nothing. Yeah. Um, so I think if you're not going to have an agreement, it's essentially gambling. You need to be willing to just say, I'll send it to them. If they don't do anything, it's gone. There's nothing I can do about it. But if that product is important to you and getting those posts are important to you and making sure that those posts aren't going to be the subject of a complaint is important to you you need to have an agreement definitely so with that being said what are your top three must-haves for legal with a small business in the context of an e-commerce business yeah or in general for service as well but i would say most services um most services that would listen will be beauty based Mm -hmm. or naturopath that sort of context so yeah um service and e-commerce but what yeah three or even if you've got three for each category yeah so there's there's probably a lot more than that but it, at the very very start when you start your business there's obviously certain things you need to do in terms of setting yourself up 
um, as a business, potentially things like um, registering an ABN, looking at your structure. Are you going to operate as a sole trader? Are you going to operate as a company or a trust? Um, there's different benefits, pros and cons to each of those things. Some are cheaper than others. Some are more expensive, but set you up better for the future in terms of asset protection, tax, um, introducing investors down the track, all of those things you would generally be better off in a corporate structure as opposed to sole trader, but there's obviously additional costs. Um, that's one of the most important things you'll have to look at first, setting up your corporate entity, getting your ABN, registering for GST if you need to do that. These are all sort of done in conjunction with your accountant as well. And then once you've got your business structure set up and you're ready to start selling whatever you're going to sell. You obviously need to source your product. You're probably going to have some sort of agreement there if you're selling a product. If you're selling a service, you're going to need some sort of um, service agreement, professional services agreement if you're a professional business. Um, if you've got a product, then you're going to need terms and conditions of trade. Um, you may need to look at registering your trademark, which, um, Em, you've talked about a little bit um, on your account. Do this um, at the beginning, people. Do this. <laughs> one question that I often get is when is the right time to register a trademark? The right time to register a trademark is before you launch your business because once you've launched your business, that's when you're likely to start seeing competitors pop up. That's when you're likely to see people potentially using your name. Plus, not to mention that you need to be doing... Um, the relevant checks before you launch to make sure that your brand is not going to be infringing on somebody else's intellectual property. Somebody else may, you may have been able to register a business name, but somebody may have a trademark registered that will prevent you from actually using that business name. So you were able to register business names and potentially start using them and then have somebody later on come in and say, actually, that name's too close to my name or that name is um, infringing on my registered trademark and then you have to start again essentially you have to go back rebrand and relaunch this so happened to one of my clients she's seven years in business and just got served with trademark infringement for having the same name as somebody else so there were six of them that all had the same name as this trademark uh -huh. so six businesses had their instagram their facebook and were served and they all had to start again and being in the service industry starting again when all your reviews and your name is sort of everything it's not reduce everything it all yeah. it, it just it's just not what you need after you've started building up goodwill in that name to be told you can no longer use that name so there's a, a preactive and a reactive I guess um, consideration when it comes to trademarks you need to one be confident that you have exclusive rights to use that name and that you're not infringing on anyone else's intellectual property but two you want to prevent copycats and other people trying to pass themselves off as a similar name to you and infringing on your um, brand and your trademark so um, trademark is obviously a very important one um, and then how are you going to market your business so are you going to do paid ads are you going to run advertisements in um magazines or online publications are you going to use social media are you going to use influencers with each of those there will be commercial agreements of some kind so these are all the absolute basics when you start up a business in terms of the agreements but then if you're engaging with your own professional services so um, for example if you're going to use M's business you're going to need to sign an agreement with M for M to provide her service and same with us when we provide our service so you're going to be encountering a lot of different commercial agreements all the time but every day we enter into commercial agreements so um, it is you know it's something that you have to be across and be taking advice on it as you need to 
Yeah, I like how you've said be, what was it, reactive, not? Reactive and proactive. Yeah, <laughs> proactive, because that's, as we were talking about before, most people are reactive, so they wait for it to happen before it hits them. So it's like, no, actually be proactive and have these things in place. It's the same as terms and conditions on the website. Most people think, you know, the standard Shopify terms and conditions are sufficient, but it's like, actually, it doesn't protect you. Um, and similar to your privacy policy. So a lot of people think, well, they, you know, they jump on the website to check whether or not they're a business that needs to have a privacy policy. Not every business needs to have a privacy policy. But one day when you reach a certain threshold in your business, you may need to have a privacy policy. So it's a good idea to have it from the start so that once you hit that point, you're already protected. You're already complying with the privacy law. Um, and also when people are providing you with their personal information, they want to know how you're going to handle it. Um, so it's important to also have a privacy policy so as we've just been talking about working with influencers can sometimes be tricky when it comes to expectations and an ROI when not put into an agreement so obviously we've just talked about this but my question was would you say it's compulsory and when would it become compulsory so obviously you've got things like brand reps which is just you know an exchange of product and it's sort of a handshake which you know in our industry does work fine because they're you know for a $50 product you're not expecting thousands of dollars but when would you say it's sort of compulsory to get into it I would say it's still compulsory for those exact situation you just said <laughs> and you know why because technically um if the brand is if the influencer is receiving something to post it's an ad so you're already in that ad territory. You're already um, in the situation where if the influencer says something wrong about your brand or they don't disclose the sponsored nature of the post and providing them with free product to post is a sponsored post. Yeah. Um, that can end up with a letter from ad standards. You could end up in um, with issues in terms of the Australian consumer law for failing to post. And I will flag that that is actually a compliance and enforcement priority for the ACCC this year. They are looking specifically at influencers failing to disclose sponsored nature of posts and the brand. I had this on my list because the amount of times we've worked with influencers or we've seen other influencers and obviously being in this space you see it every day huh. they don't like they don't do the paid partnership tag and they uh, it's the biggest misconception that if they use the paid partnership tag Instagram you know penalizes them for it which isn't true at all um but from an outsider's point of view, like, I guess it's just like unfair to see some people doing it right and some people doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. Is that, is, is there repercussions for that? Like, will they be? Have, oh, you've probably seen there's been quite a few brands that have been named and shamed about this. So yeah. if, if you are the subject of a complaint to ad standards, and keep in mind, anyone can lodge a complaint to ad standards. So you may have what's called hate followers that come after you for anything they can. Yeah. Uh, you may have competitors that don't like how fast you're getting ahead with influencers that lodge a complaint to ad standards. And you will then have to address that complaint and potentially have the influencer, well, you will have to have the influencer update their post to say that it was a sponsored post if it was. Now, if you don't have any commercial terms with the influencer and the influencer just ghosts you, you're stuck in a position where you failed to comply with the relevant code of ethics by the AANA, but you can't do anything about it because you can't control that third party. And then you end up with an issue where they may end up referring that to the ACCC for compliance. So that's where you can end up with actual um, financial repercussions for it. Um, but 
Yeah, it's in terms of the the giveaways and things like that, where you're sending, you might send, you know, a package of product to a bunch of different influencers. It doesn't need to be, let's remove a barrier here. It doesn't need to be a complicated, can here's my agreement. Can you sign it and send it back to me so that I can send you product? Because let's be real, that's probably not going to work. The influencers potentially may just ignore you and say, well, that's too hard. You send me the product if I like it, I'll post. That's just the way it's always been done. Um, you can, what I've seen work quite successfully with some of our clients is where they set up a, um, a brand rep campaign, for example. And as part of that, people, they can have influencers apply to be a brand rep. As part of that, they go on to, for example, a web page within your website and all the terms and conditions are listed. They log in all their details. That all ties in with the T's and C's. They submit and then you decide which ones you want to have as your brand reps. They've already accepted the terms and conditions before you've even considered whether or not you want them. Yeah, this is something which one you want. Yeah, do it. This is something we do do it from the very beginning because then it's like you don't need to chase them to sign something. Exactly. And it just removes that barrier of having to say, well, we need a commercial agreement between us because they accept the terms online. But when they're doing that, do keep in mind you need to have proper um, acceptance. So you would want to have them actually go through, have to bring it to their attention, the terms, and then have to tick a box to say, I accept the terms and conditions. And, and that's, you know, more enforceable than just having, you know, terms and conditions at the bottom of your web page or something. So if a brand, um, I was quite surprised by what you just said, like if there is no agreement, the brand can have the repercussion, but the actual influencer isn't held accountable for it. And no, they're not liable to do anything. Um, they may also be, but um, the brand is probably going to be the one that's chased to get something done because they're the ones that are seeking out these influencers. It's their products that have had the false advertising, essentially. Um, so if you are trying to advertise your product, you need to make sure that you're doing that in a way that complies with the law. And if you're not taking steps to actively make that happen, you could find yourself um, with issues. Mm. Gosh, I mean, it's good that they're cracking down, but it's um, it's it's intense for a small business owner to jump into this space. And it's uh, I, what I don't want people to think is like, oh my god, this is too overwhelming. I'm not going to touch influencers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they are an essential part of business, but it's just doing it right from the get go. Yeah, and having the advice around that to do it right and to do it in a way that's not too complicated or overwhelming will go a long way. Tegan, the, um, I know one of the questions going to come up is, do they need to use the paid um, partnership or can they just put sponsored hashtag ad type thing on there? So if you are on Instagram, it's a requirement as part of the terms and conditions for Instagram to use their branded content tools, which is that little link at the top that says paid partnership um, or, yeah, um, and then the brand's actual name tagged with it. Um, if you don't use that, technically you're in breach of the terms and conditions and Instagram could get rid of your account. Facebook could just remove your account, disable it, um, and you may or may not be able to get it back. So as an influencer, um, this should be a significant concern to you if you've gone to the effort of building up a very large following and you are doing um, branded content but not using that branded content tool, you could find your account either disabled or permanently terminated. Hmm. What about the A? Is it ACCC that do the regulation check? Yeah. In their eyes, what do they consider as a tick of approval? Well, in terms of the um, AANA code of ethics, 
So if you make a complaint to add standards, how it's typically been dealt with is it needs to be clear when you look at the overall impression of the ad that it is an ad. So that could be done in any number of different ways. It could be the way that it's styled. It could be the way um, certain languages used. You could actually say that it's a sponsored, it's, you know, explain the commercial relationship between you. You could use the branded content tools. We do also have um, AIMCO, the Australian Influencer Marketing Council, put out a code of practice, which we were involved in writing with them as well, um, which sets out how best practice is to um, disclose the sponsored nature of a post. So if you are in this space and if you are planning to use influencers, the absolute first thing that you should do is jump onto the AIMCO website and grab a copy of that. You can access it for free on the AIMCO website and it sets out all the best practice. This will help you guide you in terms of what you need to be thinking about and then um, making sure that you have the agreements to underpin that. Yeah. So from an influencer's point of view, is it a red flag when a small business pulls out a contract? Um, in terms of how they feel about whether or not they want to sign contracts, I mean, it depends on the influencer, I guess. If they are a decent size influencer, they should be um, well across those sort of agreements by now. The big brands are all using them. Mm. Uh, if you're a small business thinking, oh, this influencer is going to not want to do the campaign if I present an agreement, you can guarantee that if they're working with those bigger brands, they've been presented with these agreements before. They know what's in them. They know what to expect in them. Um, if they're a much smaller influencer that hasn't worked with those larger brands, they may not be as across it, but then they should be getting advice on it. Mm. I do find like the smaller accounts, you know, say like 3,000 um they actually appreciate it and feel like that's now made them almost like next level that they're at that point now. And I actually think it, it comes across more professional and you get taken more seriously having that in place. Absolutely. And we work with um, a lot of larger influencers who I think would consider it a red flag if they weren't presented with an agreement. Um, some of them also have their own agreements so that if they're not presented with one, they can present their own agreement so that there is an agreement between them. Um, so that's something to be mindful of as well. If you don't present an agreement, they may present you with one. So where do uh, other where do parties either party stand when it doesn't work and they have an agreement in place? Similar, I guess, to if you tried to buy product from your wholesaler and you something went wrong, where would you be? You have to try and then go through what was agreed, were there emails that went back and forth. There will be a lot of um, gaps in what was agreed because not everything's been covered off. Um, if you're across multiple jurisdictions, which one are you, do you fall within? Um, you're just opening yourself up to a lot more complexity um, and then a lot more legal expense if it's something that needs to actually go that far um, to figure out what the commercial agreement was between you to start with before they can even give advice on what to do next. So mm -hmm. at least if you've got a commercial agreement in place, it's likely to cover off what it needs to cover off if you've had proper advice on it. Um, and at least you're that far along the way to say, well, this is what we agreed, as opposed to what did we agree? We need to go through the back and forth to figure out where we landed on each of the issues. So would the next step be a letter of demand? Yeah, so if one party's failed to um, comply with their obligations of what the commercial agreement was, then usually you would start with a letter of demand um, and that would set out what the other party needs to do in terms of complying with their obligations. Yeah. So 
Can you break down the recent changes within the therapeutic goods that have just blown up all over social media? <laughs> Advertising code. Yeah. yeah. This just was a really big one. I think this was a really big one because there are so many um, businesses that are in the skincare, vitamins, um, supplements sort of space that do use influencers. So I think that's why there was such a widespread panic over that and the fact that that particular article in question was um, came out over the weekend I believe so we did a post after that um, that on that weekend I think it was on the Sunday I put it out and this just goes to show so that post that I put out that actually put out the correct factual information was shared I think it was about 600 times by various um, larger influencers so for anyone who says that influencer marketing doesn't work for professional services businesses <laughs> um, there's a way there's a way for it to work but I mean that was all completely organic which was very unexpected but the issue around that was really can does it apply to all skincare does it apply to all supplements um, or does it only apply to certain things because the article in question potentially caused some confusion around that issue so um, businesses should generally know well before they start to manufacture and sell their goods whether or not those goods are going to be therapeutic goods because if they are there's a whole series of obligations that they need to be aware of and complying with um, and one of those is in relation to advertising those products and that's where the advertising code comes into that so a lot of the panic started with well do, do our, are our businesses implicated by the therapeutic goods advertising code? Well, if you're not selling a therapeutic good, then it's not. Um, but a lot of questions started to arise. Well, are we selling a therapeutic good? Which was an important consideration because it, it should have been considered well before this mm -hmm. issue, but it's actually brought that issue to the forefront for a lot of people. And it's, it's actually a good thing because brands are now starting to look at the claims that they make about their products to make sure they're not making therapeutic claims about their products that would otherwise make them potentially a therapeutic good. So yeah. brands are now sort of looking at what they're saying about their goods to see, well, it doesn't fall, you know, there's a few different ways that you can determine whether or not a product is a therapeutic good. And that's things like what's in the ingredients, what does the product do, what does it say that it does in its advertising and packaging and labelling. Um, all of those things need to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis to decide whether or not something is a therapeutic good. Um, but um, I guess a lot of influencers were concerned about whether or not they were advertising therapeutic goods and a lot of brands were concerned about whether or not they were captured by the advertising code around advertising therapeutic goods and then questioning uh, actually is our good a therapeutic good um, so that was an interesting one and we're still dealing with lots of questions around that but no it doesn't apply to all cosmetic products or all food products so some products are therapeutic goods some are cosmetics some are food um, and you need to figure out as a brand which one you are before you start to manufacture and sell it. Um, but if you are selling a therapeutic good, you need to be aware of the fact that you cannot use testimonials um, by influencers who have been paid or remunerated in some way to provide those testimonials. So if you have um, an influencer who you send, um, for example, 
some vitamins that are technically therapeutic goods, that influencer can still endorse the brand, but they cannot provide any testimonial about the, the use of that product. So they can't talk about their experience. So you wouldn't want them using any I statements, like I use this, I had these results, I feel this way after using it. Um, all of those sort of statements should be removed. Um, and any that have been made previously about therapeutic goods will also need to be removed. So that is quite a bit of an exercise to go through. Um, so that's, I guess, so they, can still, <laughs> they can still use them. It's just not saying how it's made them or what a difference it's sort of made for them. It's just talking about the product in general, yes. They can't talk about their personal experience with the product. But for example, if we look at like a, a product placement type advertisement where an influencer might be standing in the bathroom and the product might be on the shelf um, and it's clearly in view and the influencer posts that and they tag the brand in that with a link through to the brand, that's, that's technically an ad. Um, the brand has paid the influencer to do that. They've tagged the brand in it. Um, people are able to click through that link to get to access that post and to access that brand and potentially buy from it, that's still an ad. That's endorsing the product. That's not talking about their use of the product. Yeah. So they just have to be very careful around testimonials. And they also need to be careful about who the influencer is. So certain former health and current health practitioners, for example, um, can't provide any endorsement whatsoever. And other people that hold themselves out to be um, health professionals or people that cure things or alleviate you know, there's specific wording around it, um, prevent disease, ailment, defect, injury, etc. Um, they also can't provide any endorsements. So you need to be more selective if you're selling a therapeutic good about who you're using to actually um, as an influencer and what they're saying about your products. So that's, it's more important to have those influencer agreements than ever if you're selling a therapeutic good. It might also be more important for you to review the content before the influencers post it to their accounts to make sure that they're not making any claims that are incorrect about the therapeutic good. Or if you're selling, for example, skincare that's not a therapeutic good, you would want to be making sure in your agreement that you're saying you're not to make any therapeutic claims about our skincare because we don't want to be considered a therapeutic good. So you need to be more active, I guess, um, in monitoring what influencers are saying about your product to make sure they're not saying anything that would might otherwise make it a therapeutic good because of the claims made about it. And I guess this would be perfect for ensuring you have that commercial license there that you know, says what you can and can't say um from so you are covering yourself so if they do say it you've got protection there yeah so you might want to actually spell out don't say this this and this and this about our product um and, and do this this and this yeah. yeah and also a general right to be able to request that they amend um the post if it does say anything that could be potentially an issue for the brand um mm. but then also potentially wanting to review the content before it's posted Perfect. All of that can be dealt with in your influencer agreement. Love to know your personal perspective on this, Tegan. Why you think this came about? How did it, you know, is it big? Because all I'm seeing online is like, oh, you know, the big, big companies are over, you know, you know, you've got the bigger brands. I don't, I don't want to mention names, but you've got the bigger brands that are unhappy that the small startups are utilizing influencers to push their therapeutic goods and no one's buying the bigger brands anymore. So they feel like that's how it's come about. But I'd love to hear from your personal perspective. It's actually more um, 
it's not a new thing that's been introduced, which is really worth noting. So um, you've never been allowed to use people involved in the marketing of the product to provide testimonials about the product. So because influencers are involved in the marketing, but it was never actually spelt out in the code that it extended to influencers, mm. some gray area around whether or not this applied to influencers. So really what happened when they updated the code was the code used to be very complex and people weren't too sure what their obligations underneath it were. So the TGA went through the process of reviewing its code and saying, well, we need to make it simpler and we need to make it clearer and it needs to reflect current practices. So as part of that, they considered whether or not influencers should be captured by that section. And ultimately it was decided that they should be and that they shouldn't be providing testimonials. So the update to the code really just clarified that influencers are people that are involved in marketing the therapeutic good and therefore they can't provide testimonials about it so this is something that you know technically probably has always been the case but it wasn't clearly spelt out but now that it is clearly spelt out there's probably going to be more enforcement action around it because they they're very clear on the issue now yeah and also if you think about this so I've had this conversation with a few people about whether or not for example sunscreens should be covered by this because people will say well sunscreen sunscreen saves lives and it's good that influencers are talking about this and it's making people buy it more but let's look at it from the other side of things of why the TGA exists to start with so they're making sure that products that we buy are safe and that do what they need to do when they have a medical claim about what they do so how would you feel if you purchased a sunscreen thinking it was SPF 50, you applied it and you were burnt to a crisp. It had absolutely no sun protection in it. You would be pretty annoyed that they're allowed to sell a product claiming it's a sunscreen when it's not, because that's an important purpose for that product. You know, skin cancer is very big issue in this country and it's something that people need to be able to rely on if they think they're using a sunscreen that they are using a sunscreen so it's important that sunscreens are treated as therapeutic goods for that purpose um, and also because you put it all over your body so you need to make sure that there's nothing in that product that could potentially be harmful to you and you use it, you know, a lot of people use it every day and all over their body on large sections of their body. So it is quite important that it is a product that's regulated and the advertising code deals with therapeutic goods and this is a therapeutic good. So if you look at it from that perspective, it's actually quite important that it is. Definitely. Tegan, you have been incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Where can, uh, if they need to contact you, where is the best place to get in touch and utilise your services? Um, you can either jump on our website, sociallawco.com.au. You can book free initial consultations through the website. You can email us. Um, you can jump on our Instagram and I'm sure um, you might include a link to that that they can just access um, Facebook, all the usual channels. Definitely. I'll pop it in the show notes. So Tegan, I'd love to close this off with something I always ask all of my guests is what is a motto you live by? I don't actually know who said it, but it's something that I've always um, seen firsthand in my career is where you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So it's, it's quite relevant when you think about it of what we've been talking about today. Mm -hmm. you don't, if you're not proactive, you're going to end up being reactive and spending more time and potentially impacting your brand and reputation because you haven't been proactive. 
100% agree. It's something I always say is, you know, I mean, think, I think feel like that's almost business in general, that if you are not planning to succeed, you're going to fail. Because yeah, if, you, if you haven't if you haven't got a plan and you haven't taken steps to implement the steps in your plan, you're just shooting in the dark and hoping that you get it right. Yeah, 100%. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tegan. And if anyone needs any legal advice or would like to take action on what Tegan has um, mentioned today, I'll pop it in the show notes so you can contact her. Thanks, Em. Tegan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Women Supporting Women on the Gram. I'd so appreciate if you left a review or tagged me on the old Instagram at sociallyem. I love connecting with you all and hearing just how much each episode resonated with you. Be sure to head over to our website www.sociallyem.com.au or our Instagram at sociallyem for the latest in digital products or done for your services for entrepreneurial women. We literally have everything you need to grow and scale on social media.